to turn with me to Isaiah 49. We're reading the first six verses of Isaiah 49. It's interesting how um, Isaiah opens this chapter. He calls us islands. In Isaiah 49.1, he says, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me from my, from my mother's womb. He has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in, a, in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. Now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, starting from verse 1. Ephesians chapter 3. And you'll notice that that song that we, uh, we had before also refers to the mystery. Ephesians 3 verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has been now, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together in one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. 
I'd just like to um, re-read verse 12. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. What a wonderful promise. May the Lord add the blessing to the reading of his word. As we come to look at God's word, I encourage you to have Ephesians 3 open in front of you. Now, typically I will start by praying, but I'm going to ask you to pray quietly in your own hearts first. All scripture is God-breathed, all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. One of the things that Jesus says, those who are the righteous, those who love the Lord, hunger and they thirst for righteousness. Some men can preach like Apollos and be very impressive. Paul says when he preached, he is quite ordinary. In the end, it's not down to the person conveying it. My job this morning is to be faithful. That's why you have your Bibles open to check. But your question is, do you want to be fed? Are there things here that you're wanting God to show you and teach you? And so why don't we quietly our own hearts first come before God and ask him to give us a hunger, to teach us something, and then I'll pray and then we'll start. Let's have some period of quiet. Father God, we acknowledge that it is your word that we have now opened. And so, Father, we ask that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, that you would feed us. Lord, unless your word comes to us in spirit and in power, we'll just merely hear words this morning. Lord, we, won't, we don't just want to feel or be entertained, Lord. We want to be fed. And so, Lord, please, we pray that you would... Work by your spirit in all of us, including myself, as we go through your word now. And feed us. In Jesus' name. Amen. A verse this morning in Ephesians chapter 3, sorry, the first verse of Ephesians chapter 3 says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Our last verse this morning, verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. As we read through the book of Acts and Paul's epistles, we see that he frequently found himself opposed and persecuted, beaten and imprisoned. The gospel is gone to the church in Ephesus. Paul has moved on in the mission and he finds himself now in prison. When you see the gospel opposed... When you see people starting to have to experience, experience consequences for believing the gospel, how does that make you feel? If you see, if you're an Ephesian Christian and you saw Paul was in prison, could potentially be put to death, how would you respond? Paul has come, he's preached the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ with these incredible promises, but now he's in chains, imprisoned. Would that diminish your sense of what the gospel is all about? 
would you start to think maybe the gospel isn't that big? That's one way I think we could go. Another way is maybe I don't want that to happen to me too. If I am as serious about the gospel as I should be or like Paul, that could happen to me too. And so you sort of fall back. That verse 13, do not lose heart, is becoming faint. Something's going on in your inner being that's starting you to crumble and start to think, is this all too much? And so you become weak in the faith and you think, do I hang in there? The context this morning is persecution, but maybe there's other things where you see things happening to the saints and you wonder, is the gospel worth it? But Paul says here, so I ask you not to lose heart. He's just shared some things with them that he wants them to hear, really hear, so that they won't lose heart, so that they won't fade back. And the things he's just shared are between I, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, he then shares a whole lot of glorious things, one of which Kev's repeated for us. And on account of that, he says, so don't lose heart. And so what we want to do this morning is look through what are those things that Paul is sharing with Christians whose faith seems to be crumbling a bit or they're being tempted to let go a bit and are becoming weary or faint on account of opposition to the gospel. Who knows which way our nation will go? Increasingly, things to do with God are being sidelined or unacceptable. We haven't reached the point of having to be imprisoned for our faith. But the reality is, with a lot of our discrimination laws, if you uphold the words of God, you will face persecutions. You'll be prosecuted. In a couple of weeks' time, God willing, we'll have someone from the Barnabas Fund come and talk to us and share with us about things happening in the persecuted church. Now is the time to be ready for whatever God may bring. And so what are these things? And so we're simply going to work our way down from verses 1 down to 12 so that we might know the so, don't lose heart. And so firstly, don't lose heart because the gospel comes from God. Sometimes you weigh things up according to the source. Where does it come from? If the gospel is from man, let it go. But if the gospel is from God, you've got to be a bit more reasoned and slow down and think, maybe I shouldn't let it go. Verse 1, he says, he's a prisoner for Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Starts with, for this is the reason Paul has been given the gospel. God has said, Paul, take the gospel, not to the Jews only, but to the Gentiles. And so Paul has packed his bags and he's gone out telling the Gentiles that they too can be saved from God's wrath by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's got him in trouble. And that's got him in prison. But it is God who has sent him out. And then he says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Why was Paul doing this? Why did he leave Jerusalem? Why did he leave Israel and go to the nations? Because the job was given to him. God gave him the job. Paul had no say. 
God literally floored him. Paul was on the way to Damascus, zealously anti-God, zealously anti the people of Jesus. And then he found himself blinded by a great light lying on the ground. Jesus spoke to him and said, you will be my messenger to the nations, to the Gentiles. Paul was saved. God saved him. Once having refused to believe Christ rose from the dead, he could not deny it and he believed. And so he was set aside to be the steward, the administrator. God gave him the message of grace, how we can be saved. And it was his role now. God set him out to share it and to spread it and to let people know. But how did he know what to say? Verse 3. The mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written to you. Before this, God's grace, how people could be saved was a mystery. Mystery simply means hidden. Not that it wasn't there, but that it wasn't seen. And God opened his eyes. God revealed it to Paul, the way of salvation. And the only way that makes clear to us of knowing God's grace, knowing how God would save us if God tells us. And God told Paul, and God told Paul, tell the world. In verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. The stewardship of God's grace, verse 2, the mystery that was made known by revelation is all about Jesus. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. How God would save a people through his son, Jesus Christ. And God's plan has always been about Jesus. There'll be no one in heaven who has not been saved through Christ. Paul knew the Old Testament pretty well. He was a Pharisee. He read it and he read it and he read it. But he never got Jesus. Can you remember those times before you were saved where you'd read the Bible and it was as if nothing was happening? You read something about Christ and you give it to an unbliever or a friend or family and you're excited about it and they come back and say, what's the fuss? The lights don't go on. But for Paul, finally, God turned the lights on to the Old Testament and showed how it was all pointing to Jesus. You remember after the resurrection, Jesus gathered his disciples at the end of Luke, we read it, and gave them a big Bible study about how everything from Genesis to Malachi was all pointing to Jesus. Paul was, he says, abnormally born. He wasn't one of the 12. He was someone who was persecuting the church. God saved him separately. And if you turn in your Bibles back to Galatians 1, which is just before, Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus gave Paul his own Bible study. Through the Spirit, he opened his eyes to see we see that after he was saved, Paul spends an extended time in Arabia. 
before coming back. We see that when he comes back, he actually heads to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and the apostles to validate the message he was preaching, that it would be shown. And the message was that it has always been about Jesus, that Jesus is God's plan for salvation. And that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Everything that God had for his people, everything that God was promising them, all was to come through Christ and what Christ would accomplish on the cross. The Jews and others kept getting the Old Testament and putting the pieces of the puzzle in the wrong order, in the wrong places. But Jesus came and showed Paul how to put all the pieces of the puzzle together and Christ was glorified. Christ was shown to be the one that all the scriptures were pointing to. You might have heard of this little, little phrase or how the New Testament, everything that we read in the New Testament is contained in the Old Testament. And this little phrase, the new is in the old contained. The old is by the new explained. And that's what the lights went on for Paul, that he would see all these things that he is proclaiming, declaring the glories of Christ were there hidden. And then God turned the lights on and Paul grasped grace and what God's administration of grace that needed to go out to the nations about Jesus. The new is in the old contained. The old is by the new explained. In verse 5, and this mystery, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, and it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Jesus taught and opened the eyes of Paul through the Holy Spirit. Before God was revealing things and the Holy Spirit was giving prophecies, turned forward to 2 Peter. You always seem to stumble across Hebrews and then go one or two, a couple of books forward to 2 Peter chapter 1. So 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke, Isaiah spoke, Jeremiah spoke, David spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There is much today that would seek to diminish prophecy, to make it very man-centered. And somehow God was somehow a part of it or man was a part of it. But when you read the Scriptures... Men spoke as they were carried or borne along by the Holy Spirit. That is why to hear the prophets, we hear God. We hear what God wanted us to hear and wants us to hear. But turn to 2 Peter. Sorry, back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 10. Now, if you had a prophecy and God was revealing things to you and saying, whoa, what's all that? What would you do? Well, this is what they did. 1 Peter 1.10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, 
inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, the later generation, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. God kept it concealed. God, even to the prophets themselves, didn't give them the full picture, even as they searched. God says, one day I'll make it clear. One day it's going to be as clear as crystal to the Apostle Paul. And that's what happened. We don't know why God left it for generations and generations. We asked that earlier in the book. Why did God wait so long before sending Jesus to die? Why didn't he just send Jesus early on? Why did God choose that people would be saved by being counted as Abraham's offspring? But as we have these big questions about God's plan, and I'll say in God's plan, Ephesians 1 has made it very clear to us it's perfect. Because God's plan and his timing is according to his will, his wisdom, his insight, his purpose, his counsel. And so God in his perfect wisdom and counsel deemed that the time for the gospel to be revealed was when it was revealed then after Christ's death and resurrection. And then that revealing was only an act of grace. Why was it hidden? Well, once it was hidden because of where it was, it was in the mind of God. God had it within him. God's plan has not come from anywhere else. It was God's plan. But it was also hidden as a judgment. By nature, we are objects of wrath. By nature, we follow the devil. Our hearts are hardened in our sin. God's under no obligation. Yet God decreed that the time would come and that he would make a way of salvation plain. We see there how it's been revealed not only to Paul, but it's been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. We'll think more about them when we get into chapter 4, but those prophets are New Testament prophets. The prophets that are spoken of in chapter 2 of Ephesians are New Testament prophets. So God, by His Spirit, when the Scriptures weren't there, where all the wisdom and revelation that God had given the apostles weren't there, God was revealing it so that people in the church would hear and be taught. But even though there were apostles and prophets, everything was tested by the apostles. One more cross-reference. Turn to 1 John. 1 John. So those other prophets and those little a apostles did not have the equal standing. But God used them to spread the gospel. 1 John 4, 6. 1 John 4, 6. The apostle John says, We are from God, the apostles. Whoever knows God listens to who? Us, it says. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If a prophet was to come along and share a gospel that was different to what Paul preached or John preached, it's false. But you would test if a prophet came to your church and said, this is the message of Jesus. Well, what 
Apostle Paul was teaching and what Peter was teaching. Everything was tested by the apostles. That is why it's the faith once and for all given to the apostles. And so God revealed it. God did this explosive revealing. It wasn't just Paul. He had a special job. But apostles and prophets were going around. God was equipping, turning the lights on, wanting people to hear the message of Jesus. So don't lose heart. Because the gospel being preached does not have its origin in man. Yes, Paul's in prison. Yes, you may be in prison one day. But don't lose heart because this is the gospel of God. God has spoken into his world. The word of hope has come to you from the throne of heaven. To reject the gospel is to reject God, not man. And God wants the Gentiles to hear the gospel. That's why we heard it. The only reason you and I have heard the gospel is because God wanted you to hear it. The only reason we have heard the gospel is because God made it plain for you and I to hear. And yes, we may face opposition, but don't lose heart. Remember who has spoken. God has spoken. Little men may persecute us, but we have the words of hope, the words of eternal life from the very throne of God. Secondly, don't lose heart because the gospel of Jesus Christ is sure and certain. Yes, Paul's in prison. That's only going to be for a little time. Verse 6, the mystery. Part of the gospel that is revealed is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We are Gentiles. Some of us might be Jews, but as a norm, we are Gentiles here in Armidale. Outside of the offspring of Abraham, we have no hope. If we are not numbered with Israel, we have no hope. And the gospel is that you and I, through Christ, are fellow heirs of the same body of the same promises. The promises that save. We can be counted as the people of God. We can have a hope that is sure and certain. God's promises are certain. And Paul says, verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister. Literally a deacon, a servant. According to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Had God not decreed that Gentiles be saved, we perish. But God, rich in his mercy, set aside Paul as a servant. Paul was there to pour out his life by the will of God that we might hear and be saved. And there's no way Paul could have done that in his strength. We see here he did it in the power of God, the working of his power. So God set aside the man and God's grace was at work in him. God's grace isn't just to save, it's to enable. 
It's to enable us to do the work he has called us to. It's to enable us to finish the race. God's grace is with us from beginning to end. And Paul, having been saved by God, by God's grace, was given God's grace, the working of God's power to go and do what there is no way he could have done himself. We must remember the gospel advancement is a supernatural work. If the power of God was not at work, Paul would have failed. He would have just been a loud mouth. He would have just built his own little gathering. The advancement of the gospel is a supernatural work. And it does seem today there are many attempts to try and grow the church through pragmatism, what men think we can do and how we can do it. 5%, given to prayer and crying out to God for his help, 95% to 99%, us just doing what we think is the good thing to do. The church advances as God's people are in earnest prayer and dependence upon him. The church advances as men full of the spirit preach the word of God, not full of degrees. The reason the gospel reached Ephesus was because of the power of God. The reason the gospel reached here is because of the power of God. And this power of God is the one that guarantees all that God would have preached to us. God has empowered a man to preach a message that we might believe it. And God's not asking us to believe in vain. But there we see the wonderful content to preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus. We really ought to spend time meditating on Jesus, searching the scriptures on Jesus. If you were to paint a picture of Christ and all his attributes, how big or how little would it be? The unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable in one sense because unless it's revealed to us, we will never see any value in Christ. But unsearchable too, once Christ has been revealed, there's no end to the wonder of Christ. We've already seen the riches in Christ that would bring us to be holy before God, blameless before God adopted through Christ, redeemed through Christ, forgiven in Christ, all things united in Christ, being made alive in Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ, enabled to partake of God's immeasurable riches of his grace into all eternity in Christ. In Christ you have everything. Everything that lasts. Everything that endures. Everything that never perishes, fades or spoils everything that will actually bring you everlasting joy and gladness. Don't lose heart because Christ is precious. Christ is rich. And God wants everyone to hear this, verse 9. Again, we see to, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. God wants the gospel preached throughout the world. And so we're exhorted again. Are we preaching the apostolic gospel? 
If Paul was to come and hear the gospel being preached today, would he say, yep, that's what I preach? Or would he walk into our church or another church and say, that's a bit different? Because as soon as we become different, the lights go off. No longer are we shining the light of God's glorious grace to people. We are preaching a man gospel, a devilish gospel, a gospel that cannot save. We must preach the gospel that Paul preached. Lest we leave men and women in darkness. And so we need to know the gospel. We need to know our Bibles. We need to know Christ. All those other gospels, prosperity gospel, and all the other names that can be put in front of it are false. We must preach Christ as Paul preached Christ. That's the only way we're going to, God will move the gospel in Armadale. God will advance the gospel as his power is at work in you and me to proclaim the gospel of Paul. To continue the administration of grace. And so God wants us to do that. He does not expect us to do that in our strength. We look to him. How many things in the Christian life have I found? I know what God wants me to do and there's no way I can do it. Or I struggle or think that's just impossible. But that God might put his desire in a heart that we then pray, help me. I want that. I want to be able to speak of Christ. I want to be able to tell people about Jesus. I can't do it in my strength. Will you empower me? Will your spirit fill me? And we must preach the whole counsel. So preaching the gospel Paul preached is not preaching less or more. It's what he preached. Nothing more and nothing less. When he went to Ephesus, he exhorts them and said, I preached you the whole counsel of God. Not just the bits I like, nor not just the bits you like. All that God has revealed. And so that's why we need to be reading our Bibles to say, oh, I haven't heard about that. I haven't heard about that. Well, that's not quite right because it's the whole council. If we leave out bits of the Bible, avoid the bits we don't like, we will risk preaching a bent gospel or we risk preaching a gospel that is not the whole gospel and people fill in the gaps. One example is what we have been taught and confronted by as God has revealed his plan of salvation goes before the creation of the world. It does. It uses words like chose, elect, predestined. If we avoid all those things that God has revealed, we will speak of salvation and then we'll fill in the gaps as to how it works. We must not be ashamed. We must preach the gospel so that God gets all the glory so that the full light is shone. And that gospel, we're reminded... Verse 9, was hidden for ages in God. All God. God hasn't had people come along and get in his ear or God hasn't gone to seek counsel. God hasn't read up on books or gone to the library. It is all God within himself, the plan of salvation, God's perfect plan of salvation. And we're reminded there too, he's the creator, we're the creatures. God who created this whole thing. Creation from beginning to end is about 
what God has planned. Salvation is what God has planned. God hasn't stepped in at some point and just keeps reacting or coming up with new plans. It is one plan that the Creator has incredibly and wondrously and perfectly put together. And as we hear the gospel, we step into that. That you and I become children of God and partake of an eternal gospel plan. The glorious, glorious plan of God. So let's not be like Esau, who sought to please his flesh for a time, make things more comfortable for his flesh, and just ditch the promises of God. Paul saying to the Ephesians, don't you see my suffering? Don't be afraid. Don't just try and make things more comfortable for yourself by ditching me. Hold fast to the gospel of the promises of God. Don't be like Demas, who was unsettled in the faith and thought it'd be easier just to live with the world. You'll lose the promises of God. Don't lose heart. The gospel that is preached from God is about Jesus and it is about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Yes, bearing the cross daily for Christ may be heavy, but it's worth it because in Christ you have everything. And in Christ, we have the one who is greater than your own sin, greater than the devil, greater than the world, greater than everything. And finally, don't lose heart because God's plan of salvation is certain. Yes, it's from God. Yes, it's all wonderful in Jesus. But will it work? Am I just hoping the probabilities land? No, it's certain. That verse 10. This is where God's got it going and he planned it from before the creation of the world so that through the church, the manifold, the multifaceted wisdom of God, like a diamond with a million trillion facets all sparkling, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those rulers and authorities, who are they? Are they just the kings and the queens, the governments? No. Turn to chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The rulers, the authorities, they are the evil spiritual forces that are at work to oppose God, to oppose his people. And yet God is doing something so that through you and I, who are the church, might completely leave the rulers and authorities speechless and defeated and angry. <laughs> We're told in chapter 1 that in Christ we become blameless in God's sight. That all our sins are forgiven. Satan and the evil forces wage war against the son of Adam. In the end, the devil's got no power over your eternity. 
The devil can't do anything. We read in the Bible, he has to ask God's permission. The only way he can destroy you is with the very law of God. He seeks to deceive us and to have us reject God and rebel against God, that we break the commands of God. For the wages of sin is death. So that God in his righteousness must punish. And so the devil from the beginning said, yes. Through the Bible, he said, yes. When David committed murder and adultery, he said, yes. When Jacob was deceiving, he's going, yes. When Peter denied Christ, he goes, yes, they are, they're done. God must destroy them. Because only God can ultimately condemn. But the magnificent wisdom of God's gospel is that through the cross, the law is rendered powerless. The Lord can no longer condemn you because when the judgment comes down upon you for payment, Christ steps in and said, I've paid it. So liar, adulterer, murder, coveter in Christ becomes powerless to prosecute because Christ has dealt with it. The payment has been made. Justice has been done. And so through the ages, Satan watches as he sees God somehow gathering a people that must perish, but God leaves their sins committed beforehand unpunished, and then Christ comes in the fullness of time, dies on the cross, rises from the dead, and suddenly God says their sins are paid for. The Ephesians were an idolatrous people, an immoral people. They hear the gospel of Paul, they believe in Jesus. Satan can no longer accuse them. The law is powerless against them. They see Christ, the one raised above all rule and authority, and in Christ they are raised to be seated with him. And that was according to God's eternal purpose. God has only ever had one plan. It wasn't God created Adam and Eve. That didn't work out too well. Plan A is dealt with. Let's go for Israel. Plan B. Israel doesn't really follow God. Israel's in rebellion against God. We'll move on. Plan C. I'll send Jesus, the church, the New Testament. No, it's been one plan all the way through. Abel. Abel's sins are paid for in Jesus. David's sins are paid for in Jesus. Isaiah's sins are paid for in Jesus. Your sins are paid for in Jesus. And so the rulers and their powers are watching this through the ages. And then Jesus comes and God through the church, the people he redeems through the cross, shows something to them that leaves them utterly powerless. Don't lose heart in the gospel. Because that revealing to the rulers and authorities isn't just that, okay, God's going to have mercy upon you, but somehow you have to crawl in shame before him into all eternity. God hasn't just saved you and shown you mercy that somehow you've got to stay away from him. I'm not going to look at you. You're not coming near me, but I'll let you live. What Paul has revealed as we've gone through here is incredible. Don't lose heart, for in Christ, God has made you holy and blameless. You can come before God. In love, he has done this. And God isn't keeping you a distance. He's adopting you as his sons, as his family. 
so that you can draw near to him, to sit on his knees, so to speak. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. His grace and mercy lavished upon you. And God looks forward to pouring out his glorious grace upon you into all eternity. And so the devils look and think you should be in the pits of hell. And yet through the manifold wisdom of God, through faith in Christ, you could not have a more glorious state. Don't lose heart. And so verse 13, having shared all these things, he says, so do not lose heart over what I'm suffering. But more than that, it's your glory. It's your glory. When Jesus died on the cross, the disciples lost heart. They went and hid until they saw the risen Lord and their eyes were opened and they saw the glory of the cross, the glory of the sufferings of Christ. Never again did the disciples feel ashamed or afraid of the cross. It was glorious. They wanted to be identified by the cross of Christ. They wanted to cling to the cross of Christ. They wanted to be adorned by Christ crucified. And so Paul here is saying to the Ephesians, his life is being poured out as a sacrifice. He says elsewhere as a drink offering. My sufferings are that you might hear the gospel of Jesus. My sufferings are bringing glory to Christ. How much value do you show in Christ when you're willing to suffer for him? To live, give up everything in the world for Jesus. Christ is being shown to be big and wonderful through Paul's sufferings. So where would you have your honor in this world? Do you want the world to see you as rich? The world to see you as an academic? The world to see you with all your degrees? The world to think you're a good bloke? Because all that stuff about Jesus could be a bit embarrassing to them. If I was to cover myself in that, I'd feel a bit shameful and a bit... Paul's saying, remember what the gospel is. As God's children, we want to be clothed with all that brings glory to Christ and all the sufferings that bring glory to Christ because it shows him glorious. Having been made God's saints, we have new things to adorn ourselves with, new things that bring us our beauty, so to speak. In 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks how hair, hair is your, speaking to the women, your hair is your glory. And now he's saying to the church, my sufferings are your glory. Would we not delight to adorn ourselves rather than distance ourselves, rather than cut off from ourselves? All that shows Christ is worth it. And as his saints, that's the adorning that's beautiful to us, not worldliness, not being ashamed of Jesus. We long to clothe ourselves with all that is pleasing to God, to be identified with all that brings glory to Christ. So I ask you, are you losing faith? Are you losing heart in the gospel? Because Paul has just told us all these things that we might think rightly. So much emotion can cause us to stop thinking rightly. When we take our eyes off all the things he's told us and we just look all around us, we get the wobbles. 
We get uncertain. We become unsure. We get anxious. And Paul's saying, stop looking all around you. Lift your eyes up to Jesus and consider the glories of Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and you'll find your footing again. And you'll rejoice and even be willing to suffer for Christ. And so seriously, are you losing heart? I pray you'll meditate on what Paul has made known to us here, for it comes from God himself. And I encourage you, if you think all is good, and as the scriptures say, be careful lest you stumble, Meditate on it daily. Better to be on the front foot than the back foot. But remember the glories of Christ. I'll pray. Father, help us. Lord, so much surrounds us and confronts us. And the world just wants to pump so much into our eyes and into our ears and into our hearts. Lord, everything is being done. The rulers and authorities are work to get us to shift our eyes from Jesus, to doubt your promises, to think the gospel, the Bible is of man. And so, Father, we pray for your grace and your mercy, that your spirit would turn the lights on, that your power would be at work in us, that we would know the gospel is from God, that we would know that in the gospel we have the unsearchable riches of Christ, all our hope and all of your promises are certain. And, Lord, that we would rest assured that this is your plan, and your plans never falter. And so, Father, may we live with certainty and hope. The glory of Christ. Amen.